All your base are belong to us. Hello, and welcome to Fake Geek Girls, a podcast looking at nerdy pop culture from both a fan and critical perspective, encouraging the things we love to do better. I'm Missy, I'm a writer, and I feel like it's always fun to, to watch a show and then be like, what character am I? And I feel like I am situated firmly between Aaron and Claire. Uh, I'm Aaron. I'm a marketer. I did the same thing, and I'm definitely the blonde girl. and The wee lesbian. Yeah, no, yes, her and the other blonde. Aaron? Girl. Yes. We're both Aaron and Claire. Okay, also that girl, the wee lesbian, was on Pritcherton. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, so today we're talking about Dairy Girls. Um, this is a commission from our friend Bailey. Thank you, Bailey. It was a great show. It was so good. Shout out to Bailey. I um, loved it. If you would like to commission us to do something, we are now, we're not doing any episodes next month aside from what we've been up to, so don't expect it for a while but i will say that we are open to commissions once again which you can do uh by supporting us on patreon for fifty dollars a month one month is fine there's rules and stuff on there that you can look into but if there's a piece of media that you want us to do a deep dive on you can do that by supporting us on patreon um so again we're talking about dairy girls a comedy series on channel four in the uk following uh, a group of friends in 1990s Northern Ireland. The location and time period is important during uh, a period of time called the Troubles. Um, now, as you may know, Mary and I are Americans and I didn't know shit about this. Yeah, I'd never heard of period it. Period whatsoever. And because of that, I thought it would be useful to explain some of the context for what's going on before we get into like analyzing the show itself. And this ended up being like, three pages long so uh so buckle in so buckle in (laughs) as they say on twitter buckle in let me learn you a thing um anyway i don't ever say that and i'm sorry for subjecting you to it right now i've never seen it so that tells me my avoidance of twitter is doing yeah you're you're doing the right thing um anyway dairy girls is a great show created by lisa mcgee who herself grew up in the 90s in northern ireland and i think in Derry. no she might not be from Derry. specific regardless doesn't matter um anyway it's a comedy show following a group of friends who are just kind of living their lives um, in this friend group, uh, it's hard to explain. It's you know, it's a sitcom, but like it has a lot more going on for it than like, you know, how I met your mother or something. Um, it's a teen show. Yeah, I think it. It if you like a show like Skins or something, it's a much more wholesome version. Yeah, um, but more war. Yes. Uh, So before we get into like the content of the show again, I'm going to try to go through a history of the troubles as told by Wikipedia and me. Now, keep in mind here, I pulled a lot of this direct from Wikipedia. So if anything is correct, it's from Wikipedia. And if anything is wrong, it's from me. (laughs) Um, I did my best, but I was reading... 400 years of history um in a, in an area in which i did not grow up so i did my best to kind of figure this out oh, yes. uh and 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 again i did pull a lot of this direct from wikipedia so like credit to wikipedia for this because Shout out to wikipedia some of this some of this is just direct quotes so again if it's wrong it's my fault if it's correct wikipedia did it um so the troubles are um 
they sort of the term the trouble sort of refers to this ethno-nationalist conflict in northern ireland which is the northeast section of ireland the rest of ireland which is an island um is referred to as the republic of ireland so when we're talking about northern ireland we're not just talking about the north part of ireland we're talking about a distinct area known as northern ireland like north carolina yeah in a, in a sense, yes. So the real root of this conflict that led to the Troubles goes all the way back probably to like the 1600s um, when Scottish and English set- settlers who were known as planters were actually given land transferred from the native Irish people who at that time were Catholic in the plantation of Ulster. Um, again, this is following some colonization like ca- Catholicism was not invented in Ireland, um, but the, the Irish the native Irish people at that time were primarily Catholic. And then these Protestant Scottish and English settlers came in and were given land because of inheritance laws, basically that they did not necessarily have the rights to. And this led to two different wars, both of which were won by the Protestant English and Scottish settlers. Um, Several laws called the penal laws were passed in the 16 and 1700s, which attempted to force the Irish Catholics and some Protestants, basically the Protestants who disagreed with like the, the stuff going on (laughs) against the Catholics basically, or if you were not a like desirable form of, of Protestant, then you could be lumped into this as well. So these, these laws, um, forced them they tried to force the irish catholics and the and some of the protestants the i think they were dissident or something like that on just i think it was dissident protestants um it tried to force them to accept the church of ireland which is both catholic and protestant due to a number of factors that i will not even pretend to understand Hmm. interesting it has to do with like a lineage and then like the compared to the actual beliefs it's as a person who is neither christian like neither protestant nor catholic my my brain turned to mush trying to read it um (laughs) So the series of laws did things like outlaw interfaith marriage. It barred Catholics from office, from teaching, hmm. and even from voting. Uh, and then it and also banned Catholics from inheriting property from Protestant relatives. Um, so basically, Catholics Catholics in this period were banned from holding any kind of power. Um, these laws began to be phased out in the late 1700s, but there were still tensions between Protestants and Catholics that gave way to new groups um, and the formation of what are now called paramilitary groups. You hear them referenced uh-huh. in Dairy Girls, things like the IRA, which we'll talk about in a bit, and the Orange Order. Um, some of those predecessors were the Pipo Day Boys, which was a Protestant group who became embroiled in conflict in County Armagh. Again, also, please forgive my pronunciations. Uh, Sometimes I could not understand what they were saying. Oh, yeah. I used captions the whole way. Yeah. Um, in, in County Armagh, uh, a section of what the, oh, sorry, a section of the Pipo Day Boys, like a very specific group in there, became the Orange Order, which are the orange men that we see in Dairy Girls. Hmm. They still exist today. Um, and they were opposed to the Defenders, who were a Catholic group who were Super fighting heroes. back against the the Orange Order and the Pipo Day Boys. Um, so violence continued between both the Catholics and the Protestants, uh, including a failed rebellion in 1798. In 1800, the Acts of Union abolished the Irish Parliament parliament and incorporated ireland into the uk so at this point ireland became part of what we now know as the united kingdom um catholic emancipation which also included those protestant dissenters and jewish people um that happened in 1829 but attempts to repeal the union itself so the unification of ireland and britain into the united kingdom those efforts were not successful 
Uh, the conflict continued because of that ongoing push to re- repeal the Union, which would mean that Protestants who inhabit in Ireland would be a minority under a Catholic-dominated parliament. Um, around three-quarters of the Irish, Irish population was Catholic. Does this make sense so far? Or does any of it need more explanation? No, I think it makes sense. Okay. Basically, it's just a lot. Yeah, basically Ireland became absorbed into the United Kingdom. People didn't want to be part of the United Kingdom and the Protestants didn't want to leave the United Kingdom because then they would be the ones who lived in Ireland would be the minority under a Catholic government and basically they didn't want to be treated the way that the Catholics were treated. Um Fair. The Home Rule movement of the late 19th century restored some self-government to the Irish, but pushes against it continued. So in 1912, we're all the way up to the 19th. Like I said, this is a long ass conflict. I just went over 300 years of history in like five minutes. Um, In 1912, unionists signed the Ulster Covenant, which said that they would resist home rule by force if they needed to, which led to the formation of the Ulster Volunteer Force, or the UVF. The Irish volunteers arose in response in 1913 and aimed to oppose the UVF. So you have the IVF versus the IV. They may have just called them Irish volunteers. Um, Civil war at this point seemed like it was right on the horizon, (laughs) like there was no way to avoid it. But they were interrupted by the First World War in 1914, uh, and it delayed. Saved any, by the bell. Saved by the First World War. Um, so that was in 1914, and so even though Home Rule was passed in British Parliament, it was suspended during the war. Um, the Irish War of Independence, which was between the Irish Republican Army or the IRA, again they they exist today, especially in the form of the new IRA. Um, And those British forces ran from 1919 to 1921 and eventually led to the creation of the Irish Free State. Um, The Government of Ireland Act 1920 actually split Ireland into two jurisdictions, Southern Ireland and Northern Ireland, or I think what is now known as the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland. Um, Northern Ireland remained part of the UK, so it was still still part of that, but... um, it had its own system of government, which was agreeable to unionists, so the people who wanted to remain part of the United Kingdom, but was not agreeable to nationalists who claimed it was legal, illegal, arbitrary, and gerrymandered to favor the unionist interests. Hmm. Northern Ireland, despite this split, remained part of the UK, but it had its own system of government, so it was kind of like given this almost like sovereign position, um, which was agreeable to unionists, so the people who wanted Ireland to be part of the United Kingdom. Um, But it was not agreeable to nationalists who claimed that the rule was illegal, arbitrary and gerrymandered to favor the unionists. So like they had representation in UK in the UK government and that kind of thing. But they were gerrymandered such that their their sway was minimized. Mm, Sounds familiar. Yeah. So the Irish Civil War followed the War of Independence alongside the creation of the Irish Free State, which ran from 1922 to May 22. Sorry, not 2023. That'd be wild. Mm-hmm. From, to May 1923, between the pro-treaty provisional gover- government and the anti-treaty IRA. And this was all over the Anglo- Anglo-Irish Treaty. So again, you have this disagreement between um, between people who want to be part of the UK and people who don't want to be part of the UK. Um, and it seems like... it. It's despite the fact that the uh, that the disagreements are between the Protestants and the Catholics, it's not a religious war. It just has to do with like history and um, different ideological divisions and attachments, as opposed to the the religion itself. It's like when the religion becomes more political, yeah, of, of, of an identity, yeah. 
Um, the pro-treaty side won this agreement, so they remained part of the UK. Uh, the IRA continued their mission to overthrow the North Ireland government and free state government to unify England. Um, I feel like I worded that strangely. The, yeah. Okay. The IRA, basically what I'm saying here is the IRA did not want to be part of the UK. Uh, more weird acts were passed that allowed things like flogging what to preserve law and order without a trial um because the conflict continued tensions continued growing between the generally unionist protestants and the generally nationalist catholics Hmm. the troubles are usually said to have lasted about 30 years from the late 1960s to 1998 um basically ending with the good friday agreement um but you can see this goes like the roots of this conflict go back all the way to the 1600s and arguably even before that. So long time. Yes. So most of the conflict of the troubles were now caught up with, with the sixties and and nineties, everything between there. Um, most of the conflict took place in Northern Ireland, but sometimes had consequences elsewhere. There was bombings of landmarks, but also home schools and businesses. Uh, it had, so again, this conflict had an ethnic or sectarian angle what is sectarian like that's a good question mary that i didn't think to look up (laughs) so sectarian means denoting or concerning a sect or sects so so basically sections okay um or like a specific group so it was an ethnic or sectarian conflict but not religious again it, it isn't necessarily a war for whose religion is right it's a war over like land and nationality as opposed to the, as represented in part by religious affiliation. So unionists and loyalists, um, predominantly Ulster Protestants were called the, un- the unionists and loyalists. They wanted North Ireland to remain in the UK. Irish nationalists and Republicans, predominantly Irish Catholic, wanted them to leave the UK and join a united Ireland. That's the, that's the gist of the troubles. I think you did pretty good. Thank you. Um, And again, all of this kicked off because of a campaign to end discrimination against the Catholic slash nationalist minority helmed by the Northern Ireland Civil Rights Association with the government attempting to suppress these protests. Um, In in, in the mid-1960s, a nonviolent civil rights campaign began in Northern Ireland to end job discrimination, housing discrimination, voting restrictions, gerrymandering, police reform, and, and the inclusion of an act that allowed the police to search without a warrant and put people in jail without charge or trial. And, right. Yeah, and also banned assemblies, parades, and publications. So, like, there was clearly some attempt to suppress. Yeah. Um. The all the all the classics are in there. Yeah. Um. The police, known as the Royal Ulster Constabulary, Constabulary, Constabulary. I can never say this. I put like eight more consonants in this word than exists. Constabulary. I think is how it's said. Constabulary. Yeah. Um. The, <laughs> or the RUC were overwhelmingly Protestant. So, like, the police force in Northern Ireland was primarily Protestant, and they were the punishing body uh, of this predominantly Irish Catholic group, and they were accused of police brutality. Um, for example, uh, the police force did not protect the civil rights marchers from UPV violence. Um, there was footage of this that sparked riots in Derry between nationalists and the RUC. Um, there was severe violence in August, 1969, including the deployment, deployment of British troops. Uh, and at that point that kicked off the British army's longest ever occupation of Northern Ireland. Yeah. Which is saying something. Yeah. 
um, peace walls were built. You'll you'll hear these referenced a lot. The walls, um, the peace walls were built to separate different communities of different ideologies, and they were erected all over Ireland, which would um, just to keep communities from butting heads. Twenty nine barricades alone were erected in Derry by the end of 1971, which actually blocked access to free dairy a specific autonomous autonomous nationalist area of dairy that existed from 1962 sorry 1969 to 1972 hmm. the mural saying you are now yeah. entering free dairy it still exists and is visible in dairy girls yeah i saw it i saw it in dairy girls um interesting yeah so that was a specific autonomous zone that was like self-governed and basically said fuck the uk Mm -hmm. um so the ruc became particularly problematic after bloody sunday in 1972 you've probably heard of that before um 13 unarmed men were killed by the british army in Derry during an anti-internment rally uh another one died months later of injuries and 15 additional people were wounded and it was the largest number of civilians killed in a single shooting incident uh, at that time hmm. and it inspired more hostility from the Catholic and Irish nas- nationalists toward the British government and military which resulted in drumming up more support for the IRA um, the main participants in the in the violence were Republican and when I say Republican I don't mean like in the American pol- political sense these aren't yeah like conservative Americans um, so the main participants in the violence were Republican paramilitaries, including the Provisional Irish Republican Army, or the IRA, and the Irish National Liberation Army, the INLA, and loyalist paramilitaries like the Ulster Vol- Volunteer Force, the UVF, and Ulster Defense Association, the UDA, as well as the British Army and the RUC and the political activists. So there was a lot of violence so going on. Yeah, there's a lot of acronyms here. Um, Republican paramilitaries or paramilities, as I wrote, um, (laughs) carried out, they carried out guerrilla campaigns and bombed infrastructural, commercial and political targets. The loyalists targeted Republicans and nationalists and the Catholic community in what they said was retaliation. So the IRA said that they had political targets. The, uh, the, um, loyalists were sometimes doing retaliation, which included attacking civilians. Um, collusion between there was collusion between british state forces and loyalists like everybody was yeah everyone was being rude yeah uh more than 3500 people were killed jeez 52% of those people were civilians so most wow. of the people who died in this conflict were just people trying to live their lives uh republican paramilitaries were responsible for about 60% of the deaths uh by the late 1970s people were really tired of this they were really fucking tired of it and they established the peace people uh which was an organization that actually won the nobel peace prize in 1976 uh and they called for an end to paramilitary violence which was popular until they suggested that nationalists share information about ira the ira with security forces at which people at which point people were like actually fuck that (laughs) um the IRA continued their armed campaign through the late 18, 1980s and early 1990s, but the political wing sought to get, sought to end the conflict through negotiation because there are different arms of the IRA. Um, Not complicated. Yeah, there was, on, there was only so much I could do. Uh, several ceasefires were ordered in the 1990s to various degrees of effect. Um, the North Ireland peace process led to param- paramilitary ceasefires and resulted in the Good Friday Agreement, which restored self-government to Northern Ireland on the basis of power sharing, 
as well as some other benefits. So there was police reform, paramilitary disarmament, civil and political rights, etc. And basically the the thing that it, that this Good Friday agreement came down to was that Northern Ireland would remain part of the UK unless they vote otherwise. Hmm. Now the difficulty there is that there's still gerrymandering, right? So it's not as easy as that. So I'm not a history expert. I did my best. But what I did study is literary criticism. <laughs> so let's talk about things I actually feel like I might know something about. Uh, so let's talk about realism. Let's get real. Um, let's get real. <laughs> One of the show's most interesting features to me is that it's very grounded in the real world, um, mm-hmm. both because the story itself is fairly realistic um, and also because of the very real historical background, right? The shenanigans that the characters get into are not necessarily realistic. Like <laughs> the, the bleeding yeah, they're pretty wild. There's some wild stuff goes on. Um, but I actually think that works in favor of the show's realism and not against it. Um, because characters are doing these exaggerated things themselves. And even the characters are a bit exaggerated, right? Um, it helps them fit in, both fit into and stand out from the frankly wild world that they live in, where a bombing is just an everyday occurrence, yeah. right? Like, I feel like if, it, if they were toned down to be more realistic then the show would have a very different tone. I think you need it to be, you need their shenanigans to be weird. Um, Like you need things like skipping town to go to a concert and accidentally leaving your cousin behind with the travelers to, to work in the sitcom format without feeling like tonally dissonant when you've got bombings going on, you know, the hilarity of the main mundane stuff rises to meet the, the shocking nature of the real stuff that's going on in the background. Um, and I think it also ensures that the real stuff doesn't overtake the interpersonal drama because the interpersonal drama is really the focus of the show, mm-hmm. right? It's not about who bombed who in the 90s. It's a show about people growing up in this environment. Yeah. Um, and it would be very easy, easy, I think, for viewers to become more invested in the political struggles if the friendship struggles were not not only like foregrounded and clearly the interest of the creators, but also like as fucking ridiculous as the, <laughs> as the bombings going on. Um, but that doesn't happen because the friendships and, and so on rise to meet the intensity of the political conflict. And I think we need the sense of humor because it keeps us engaged all the way through. Unlike my recitation of Wikipedia above. If only I had invented some characters to, <laughs> to carry us through that. Um, but I didn't. So instead you get wikipedia um it's also i think an important reminder that while people outside an area filled with conflict especially conflict that's like very dangerous and violent and like very present might only see that conflict right like if i'm an outsider and i'm looking at it then i'm like god that's so scary i can only focus on the conflict i feel like that's part of like one of the things i i I noticed about the show and I think it's really true is how you have to just continue to live your life. Like yeah. even in like historical, you're like, we're living in a historic moment. I think with COVID it's a little bit harder to do this because we literally need to stop living our lives. <laughs> yeah. But like things like, um, like living through the recession, like, I mean, we grew up, we were, uh, like preteens after nine yeah. 11. Yeah. And like, I mean, not only did we not really understand the gravity, but also like we were kids. We had to live our lives. Yeah. We had to continue to go to school. We had to have fun. We had to go to the mall. Like we like, and and it was scary. Like thinking back on it, like there were, 
there were still small like terrorist things happening. There were um, there's that show coming out about anthrax. Yeah, or there were small bombings and stuff like that, which you don't hear much anymore. But um, you know that that was still a real fear. I'm sure a real fear for our parents as well. But what are we gonna do? Stay inside all the time? Yeah, exactly. Um, so having a show like this where like to outsiders this just seems like a, how are people living in this situation um we can see you know through the show that there are people living extremely normal lives in these settings like they're getting drunk with their friends they're chasing boys they're going to prom they're not cowering in their homes at every single moment um and it's important to remember i think that everywhere are people with much the same interests and motivations right just because they are subject to violence doesn't mean that violence is all they are and we can take this and apply it to other regions as well where violence like this is still ongoing and remember that they are people and that they're living their lives among it. Like, And that, I think, should, in my opinion, do more to gal- galvanize us like, yeah. against that kind of state violence and care more about it because like, this is going on to real people who are trying to live their lives to the fullest and they deserve full lives as much as those of us who are blessed to not live in a, in a place with, um, you know, state inflicted violence or paramilitary violence also i think it's important to remember like a lot of times things like this um violence and stuff like this often is centralized into one area so you could live an hour away and not feel the effects of something that is happening like if something terrible were to happen in seattle for us we would not necessarily have to be like oh that's going to happen to us as well right um because it's a lot of times centralized for m- multiple different reasons. So yeah. that helps in the ability to continue on with your life. Whereas someone might look, if something, let's say something would happen in Seattle, we may get questions from family members in other states like, oh, are you okay? Mm-hmm. Well, of course we're okay. We're not in Seattle. We're yeah. an hour away. Yeah. So I think it's it, it portrays that really well. Yeah. Um, so this is a quote from my Northern Irish family reviews Dairy Girls, which was by Nate Jones, uh, who writes, many reviews of Dairy Girls spotlight the skillful way it depicts life amid the bombs and barricades. That's Mary's favorite part of the show, too. Her father's shop was on the main road into town and the British army eventually put up a checkpoint right outside. Every time the IRA blew up the checkpoint, they blew up the store as well. The joke in Dairy was buy now while shops last. Things like that happened all the time, Mary said. Um, so we'll talk about gender a bit later in this episode, but something I came upon while researching quite a lot was uh, that media about the troubles um, is usually very serious, and which is fair, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and in particular, it has not done right by Irish women mm-hmm. uh, who are known for being particularly fierce and having like a very coarse sense of humor, which of course isn't universal, but um, it's still like something that is like kind of known among that community. Um, yeah. Instead they're typically depicted as like the sad wives of people who have died or joined the IRA or whatever. Not dairy girls. No. And that's, that's something that makes dairy girls really appealing. Um, so the, since the show treats these very scary events with the levity, the people of dairy treated them with, I think it lends even more of an air of legitimacy to it because like if they're saying, you know, shop (laughs) by now while shops last, um, that kind of mirrors the, the attitude that the characters of dairy girls have toward what is actually a very scary environment where like they could just blow up the bridge on your way to school um and you never know when it's going to happen like that that tracks to me makes it feel more legitimate even if the events themselves don't always perfectly line up with reality um so yeah lisa mcgee who's the creator and writer of the show did grow up in dairy in the 90s so she's coming at it from the perspective of somebody who really experienced it 
Um, and reading interviews with other people who were there, there's a lot of confirmation that the show is really what it felt like. Um, like it, it did feel like that weird nonsensical mixture of intense violence and then the just like normal life drama, like your boring ass neighbor coming over and telling you a boring ass story. Um, this is another quote from that same essay, My Northern Irish Family Reviews Dairy Girls by Nate Jones, who writes, The troubles began when Mary was in her early teens. If you grow up somewhere war-torn, it's quite different from what you would imagine, especially for young people, she told me. When the riot started, she and her friends would go downtown and watch them instead of going to dances. We didn't really think it was anything dangerous. It was just a stupid thing teenagers were doing. Things got very out of hand. You would get sprayed with tear gas. Mary came from a strict Catholic family, so hanging out with those of the other persuasion was definitely against the rules, but at the riot, she would meet Protestant kids who wanted to see what all the fuss was about, too. Eventually, they became friends. We were running with Protestant people all the time she said it was nothing to us um and i think this is important to remember too right while watching if you haven't grown up in an area like this it's easy to wonder how everybody's just kind of going about their lives Mm -hmm. while people are letting off bombs um but that's what people do right life has to go on Mm -hmm. especially when you're growing up in this environment it becomes just background to you Uh, and that doesn't mean that you're never afraid only that what would be shocking to outsiders is just kind of a fact of your life um, similar on a much smaller and less frightening scale um, to how I tell people not from where I grew up that under there were certain summer days where you didn't go outside because they were spraying pig's blood yeah. on the fields and it smelled really bad. Yeah. Um, now I googled this and apparently this is not a real practice. Hmm. Um, at least as far as I could understand. So maybe somebody lied to us along it the sure way. It sure did smell once a year, though. But it sure smelled bad. And when you tell that to people who didn't grow up in a farm town, they're like, what the fuck? No. But like, when I grew like to people who grew up in our town, it was just a fact of life that one day it smelled so fucking bad that you couldn't go outside. It was once a year and it was like in the beginning of summer yeah and it just stinks so bad but it's like when i when you tell people that they're like nah that's not real and like apparently it probably wasn't pig's blood i don't know what it was but like the whole town smelled so bad it was gross um it's just unbelievable unbelievable to people who don't grow up in those circumstances but like to you it's just normal um Mary also, not Mary on the podcast with me, the Mary who's in the piece. Uh, Mary also states here that despite the long, the very long conflict between Catholics and Protestants, they really had no trouble becoming friends with Protestant kids over time. Um, The prejudices that they have, like the prejudices, the prejudices Mm -hmm. didn't have to be the prejudices of their parents and ancestors. And even then, it's hard to say how strong the prejudice was with the average person because so much of the conflict was concentrated between the IRA and the other paramilitary groups fighting this historical conflict that was like 300 years old. Um, But honestly, I can't really say how accurate that is because I'm not really familiar with this time period of conflict. Like it's hard to say how deeply ingrained the, the prejudice was as opposed to like, please stop please stop. Let us live our lives. But also I don't want to be part of the UK. It definitely felt like the prejudice ran ran strong in the show. Yeah. Why did, what is, at least among the adults, less so among the, the kids. Well, I don't know. They still like when they went, well, I guess it's a different kind of prejudice of, of like when they went to, uh, to hang out with the Protestant boys. They definitely had prejudices, but they also wanted to fuck those boys real bad. Yeah, they sure did. Um, Except for the wee lesbian. Except for the wee lesbian. Uh, In this piece, uh, Mary also discusses how in real life, James, who is the um, 
Michelle's cousin from England. Uh, James probably would have been super popular with other teens in a town <laughs> like Derry precisely because he was unusual. Um, she describes uh, English accents as glamorous to yeah. her when she was 17. So that again, that, that sense of prejudice is maybe not as ingrained as you would expect. Um, in the same way that, you know, kids will often parrot what their parents say in terms mm. of like prejudice, but they don't really mean it. They don't really know what it means. It's just something that they've heard. So they repeat it. Um, this is a quote from Humor and Herma- Humanity, Sister Michael from Dairy Girls by Mary T. Stimming, who writes, For the most part, the troubles function as backdrop for their lives, not a central focus. We see Ian Paisley thunder on TV, an orange man march disrupts traffic, the famous murals appear. But when a newscaster announces a possible bomb on a nearby bridge, Aaron's mother moans, Does this mean they can't get to school? I've had a summer of it. When British soldiers board their bus, Michelle speculates on their sexual prowess. The violence that racked Northern Ireland during the Troubles is not treated lightly, but only as one dimension of the character's reality. And I think this is a really important distinction, right? Because it's not like things like bombings and riots don't matter in their lives because of course they do. You can't live in you can't live here and have it not matter to you. Um, but they're only one facet of the complete life that they're living. And the rest of their life keeps going around this conflict. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems to cause them more irritation than it does fear um, most of the time. But I think there are moments of genuine fear, too, especially for the adults who, of course, are trying to cover it up for the children. Yeah, They, they want the children to be able to live their lives. They don't want the children to be afraid. So sometimes they're not talking or not emoting to the degree that they would be among other adults. Yeah. Seems very familiar to different traumatic times we've had. Yeah. Um, The thing is, like, having lived with it for so long, that fear is a constant background noise rather than something fresh that needs attention all the time, Mm -hmm. um, which is exactly how Dairy Girls treats it, right? Um, Instead of being, like, a war story, as you would expect, Dairy Girls is instead a series of stories that take place with a backdrop of conflict. It's not that the conflict isn't important. Um, it actually presents a problem of some kind or another in almost, if not every ap- episode. It's only that the lives of the individuals that live in Derry are also important uh, in that way. And I think that it, that ends up being really effective. Um, we're not focusing on the conflict as the source of strife, but instead the humanity of the people that live there and how they're affected. Not from a tragic perspective. Like, it's not all about tragedy. Um, It doesn't end up being trauma porn. But I think that despite or perhaps because of the humor, it's effective at showing how living in a place with conflict like that both does and does not impact your daily life. Yeah. And again, I think like I think there are a lot of parallels that we can draw. I mean, they're not the same. Right. But there are parallels you can draw to things like living with COVID Mm -hmm. or living, you know, after 9-11 or during the Great Recession for us. I mean, there's a point where you just get tired. Mm-hmm. You just get tired and you get and or you, you get tired and you just want to live your life how you used to. So you just like I was reading I was reading an article the other day or part of it about how like 30 or something percent of people think COVID's done. Right. And they're living and that COVID is not affecting their life at all, Mm -hmm. which to me is bonkers. Yeah. But at the same time, like I can't like, yeah, I'm tired too. Yeah. I want to go do the things that I want to do. Yeah. I want to see my family and not have to worry. Is this a good idea? So like I get, I get it. You have to eventually you, I've kind of come to the like, I have to at some point continue to live my life at some, to like some degree of normal, like, a COVID normal, I guess. Yeah. Um, I can't consistently stay inside all the time. I have to go to do the things that I love. I am vaccinated. I do do the things that, you know, I'm supposed to do, but like, I understand where people are like, 
they want to believe COVID is over mm-hmm. or they just simply have to keep living their life. So yeah, I get it. And I, yeah, I think that's, that's like, it's not, it's obviously not the same, No, but you can kind of, you can kind of see how it's a, it's a, trauma, a trauma, a trauma like that eventually has to become background noise or you remain paralyzed with fear for your entire life which is no way to live and like i think even psychologically your brain adjusts to it like Mm -hmm. the way i feel about covid now is not the way i felt in march 2020 where it (laughs) took up every moment of my brain like it was it was everywhere i looked everything i thought about to some degree was covid yeah whereas now it's like oh a new variant well (laughs) let's hope you know it's kind of like i still have to go to the grocery store yeah. i still gotta go go get my teeth cleaned on thursday like i still have to keep going or just do night like go to the mall right like we still have to live and and all of our interpersonal dramas still exist even though yeah. we're still living through a pandemic um yeah can't wait for 10 years 20 years 30 years and have our sitcom of covid oh god um so the next thing I want to talk about after realism is the use of language and slang and, and that kind of thing. Um, as I was researching this episode, there was a lot of conversation about the slang being really hard to identify or like understand, which like I actually didn't really agree with. Um, I start like I started the show immediately with captions. I have a really hard time following um, Irish accents on TV and it British accents. Intense. Um so like I've started with captions right away I would, with like no hesitation I'm like this is a this is a caption show um but I felt like you could figure out most of the slang from context I think so I always also use captions but I'm a slow reader and there were mm. plenty of times where they'd say something and I'm like I have no idea what they just said but I don't I didn't need to know exactly what they said because I because I could get you like, can get the point I can get the point yeah I can totally get the point I don't I'm maybe not completely like literally could not understand what they said um but that's not necessarily the point of slang right there were a couple of like pieces of slang in particular that threw me there was the punt purse for a bit like i just didn't know what a punt <laughs> yeah, was I had to look that up. uh and then catch yourself on which like catch yourself on i got the gist of it right but the the phrase catch yourself on doesn't make any sense to my ears mm-hmm. but i'm sure the same is true for sayings that are common here right mm-hmm. like people listen to us say weird things like it's raining cats and dogs and they're like what the fuck does that mean or finna finna like they're finna. yeah from what i understand finna is a a contract like a contraction of a contraction for fixing to yeah um but finna but like things like that, they don't necessarily make sense to outsiders' ears, and that's okay. Like, um, but for the most part, I felt like you could figure out what they were saying without too much trouble, provided that you paid attention to context. Yeah. Um, and I actually wasn't planning to talk about slang in this episode because it was talked about a lot of other places. But I actually found a really interesting essay on it, so let's talk about slang. All right. Um, this is from Obscure English Irish, sorry, Obscure Irish English Dialogue and Hermetic Cultural Meaning in Lisa McGee's Dairy Girls, which is by Jonathan McCready, who writes. Uh, Dairy English is, however, unique in Northern Ireland since the Protestant and Catholic communities in the city use subtly different phonological speech features owing to ethnic segregation and cultural and political factors. So, unfortunately, I do not have enough familiarity with Irish accents to benefit from this. Uh, But the difference in speech patterns and features between the Catholic and Protestant residents of Derry is super interesting. Like, this is a real phenomenon where people where people who grew up who grew up catholic or descendants of like catholics would have one speech pattern or Uh type of slang versus people who grew up protestant 
Um, and I'm extremely not a linguist, uh, so take this with a grain of salt, but it does suggest that the political divisions between these groups is profound enough to result in different speech patterns developing over time, especially when you consider the number of peace walls erected in Derry. Um, and I'm sure there's also just a difference in like social groups mm -hmm. and how that impacts speaking. But this suggests that the long periods of segre segregation did result in distinct methods that makes sense. of speaking. Yeah. That makes sense. And I would love to see this in a future season of Dairy Girls. Yeah. Like the language and slang, I think, is so key to situating the show in a specific time and place without being apologetic about it. Um, and I would like to see something like a scene where the characters we know interact with some Protestants and they run into like wildly different slang or terms yeah. for the same terms for something or like different pronunciation or like what the fuck are you saying um which would be especially baffling for american audiences who can't tell the difference between distinct regional accents aka me um so this is a quote from obscure english dialogue a same essay obscure english sorry obscure irish english dialogue and hermetic culture meaning in lisa mcgee's dairy girls again by jonathan mccready who writes Erin uh, uses iconic and classic dairy English words and phrases to express exasperation. She has a high opinion of herself intellectually and views herself as highly artistic, although all evidence in the show points to her being quite the contrary. Hence, she has a hilarious tendency to look down on her friends and family. Sorry. It's she has small. Hence, she has a ludicrous tendency to look down on her friends and family. Her use of the word boke in episode one means to be sick. And, and she says it in disgusted re response to her father's sensitive avowal of love to her mother, saying, ach, boke. And she habitually uses the phrase catch yourself on to mean wise up or come to your senses. Don't be silly when totally exasperated. Seemingly, she has subconsciously picked this up from her mother, who memorably says in her s says it to her in, her in episode two when Aaron inquires about getting money from a so-called trust fund <laughs> <coughs> so funny. that she thinks she has. Mary states 7654321. That's the account number. The password is, what was it again? Oh, I catch yourself on. Uh, Ock, which is an exclamation of sorrow is derived from Irish and demonstrates the language's substratum <laughs> influence from when Derry was a bilingual part, part of Ireland. Sorry, this, te this text is small. I'm on my phone and my eye is watering. And you're not a linguist. And I'm not a linguist. Um, so we'll return to the idea of Erin's perception of herself as intellectual later. So just put a pin in that for now. Um, but her choice of words is very funny in light of that. As McCready explained, she holds herself on this sort of pedestal as being like, she's the smart artistic one. I love her. I do too. Um, but she isn't very nice. She's so funny. Which comes through in her choices in words, such as saying boke. Um, she certainly sees herself as cooler than her mother, as all children do to their parents. Um, but she mimics her use of phrases like catch yourself on. Um, and like, of course, people inherit words uh, from the people who surround them, right? Like there's a reason I've been saying criminy since I was a teenager, <laughs> even though like that is not a teenager word. Um, but it's interesting here because the language that that Aaron uses reveals something about her character. Saying "boke" and "catch yourself on" are not exactly in line with her projected image of like intelligence and class. Because literally, like in in our terms, what she's saying is like "barf" in response to things, which is not like a super intellectual thing to say. <laughs> like if somebody is is being, you know, if your dad is like saying something sweet to your mom and you go "barf," that's not like. Oh wow, so intellectual. <laughs> the word choice. Yeah. Um, but they do reveal the culture that she's part of, right? It's a clue that we can't quite trust her narrative about herself. Although to be fair, it's not exactly hidden that she is not the person that she thinks she is. So <laughs> it's funny. pretty clear. I love her so I much. do too. 
Uh, along with awk, which co- that's O-C-H, uh, which comes, I can't do the sound. It's not a sound that's really in uh, our variety of American English. So awk it is, um, which comes, which comes derived from the English, sorry, from the Irish language rather than English that again suggests that connection to the region's history as bilingual, though to us, it might just feel like something Irish people say, right? Like you hear awk, you're like, oh yeah, that's an Irish, that's an Irish thing. Um it has a historical backing which is tied to the region that makes its use even more interesting in the context of dairy, which is the scene of so much struggle over independence from England. Um, another quote here from that same essay by Jonathan McCready, who writes, uh, Dairy Girl's difficulties make it stand out in the otherwise straightforward medium of television where the vast majority of shows don't need post-viewing research. However, it is not for eccentric reasons that this is challenging. It is rather because Dairy Girl's... It- at its core, is a celebration of Irish English. The show's dialogue revels in its remarkable linguistic elasticity, and McGee makes it abundantly clear that copious layers of nuanced meaning would become lost from the show if its usage of dairy English became softened or even translated slightly into standard English. Dairy Girls... You're gonna cry. I know, I'm struggling. Dairy Girls therefore succeeds at being not only a triumphant linguistic... I really do sound like I'm gonna cry. You go get some water? I have water. Um, sorry. Dairy Girls therefore succeeds at being not only a triumph in linguistic and cultural authenticity, but also as a figurative ambassador for the popularization of Irish English in mainland Britain. So again, I don't know that understanding what was going on in Dairy Girls was especially difficult. Like, yeah, I didn't know specifically what a punt purse is, but that actually then gave me an interesting rabbit hole to trace down, right? Um, A punt purse, from my understanding, is a purse... Well, from context, what I gathered is a punt purse is a purse containing a different currency that they would need because they were traveling. Mm -hmm. And I could infer why different governments over different borders with whatever uses the punt being somewhere they didn't want to mess up. Right. Which probably meant somewhere under British rule. Um, And after doing some reading, I learned that it's a little more complicated than that. (laughs) Okay, But I never would have known that at all had the show decided to avoid that plot entirely or to just use a different like oh i brought the wrong purse yeah as opposed to where's my punt purse yeah um i never would have known that had the show decided to avoid that plot so that international audiences wouldn't be confused i think there's a lot of value in sometimes allowing your audiences to be confused yeah that's fair i think it depends on what you're there being confused on that's a pretty um i think a lot like that's i think something that context you can get and and still carry on yeah it's not like they they like referred to like some character we've never met or something like you could you could figure it out um i think there's a lot of value in maintaining cultural authenticity even if it means the show is a bit more inaccessible to, to international audiences the goal of the show of course is to be funny and to talk about a specific period in history right but you can't talk about that specific period in history without being being true to it yeah authenticity yeah um, and reserving those speech patterns and slang, uh, no matter how confusing it is to outsiders, actually does, like, it, it furthers that mission of being authentic in a way that, mm-hmm. you know, changing the words would not. Mm-hmm. Changing the words may sound like, uh, you know, um, life is strange. Oh, God. Um, for those of you who are concerned about the sound of me during that last section, I have gotten cough drop. Um Hopefully I will no longer sound like I am choking to death or about to cry. Um, We shall all miss it. Yeah. You know, my husband sure likes it when I sound like that. (laughs) Let me tell you, 
about dwarven rations. I'm ready. Uh, so have you heard of these? I'm, I think. Never. Maybe not. Never. Um, dwarven rations make artisanal cakes with a dedication cakes. to quality. Cakes. Cakes. Can you believe it? Cakes. Cakes. Um, they are made in Bermuda and they are shipped worldwide and they've been doing that for 20 years, over 20 years. 20-year-old cakes. All of the cakes were made. That's not true. We can't <laughs> no, say that in no, that. No, 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 no. They're delicious fresh cakes. Um, fresh cakes for 20 years. Yes. Uh, they have many flavors, including traditional, which is a lemon and Madagascar vanilla, chocolate, which is light and fruffy, fruffy, Fluffy. Melissa, you've been reading the furries Twitter too. Fluffy, <laughs> light and fluffy yet brownie like swizzle, Michigan cherries, apricots, pineapple, orange, and lemon, oh. like a rum punch. Coconut, so coconut shreds with rum for a pina colada flavor, and rum and ginger, so apricots and ginger in the spirit of a dark and stormy. <gasps> um, and even better, each box contains a random tabletop RPG dice. Die is the wow. singular form. Um, and wow. who doesn't love that? Uh, they also have a special, incredibly low cost custom advertising cake kit for people who want to offer new merchandise products for their fan base, but they don't want to buy or pay, pay for or ship inventory because no, none of that's fun. No. Uh, instead, they do all of that for you and they send you the cash as the cake sell, which is great for starting up merch because it has such low upfront cost. Do it. Um, and all of these cakes are fantasy themed and made by a dedicated group of gamers, nerds, and artists. Um, currently they are working out of the Bermuda Rum Cake Company in Bermuda, but are working to get a stateside bakery slash gaming center up and running in the coming months and years. To find out more, head to their webpage at docglass.com slash dwarven rations. Um, that's D-O-C-K-G-L-A-S-S docglass.com slash dwarven rations. Now... I'm going to play you an ad from a podcast on our network. Heck yeah. So enjoy. We live on a placid island of ignorance in the midst of black seas of infinity, and it was not meant that we should voyage far. And yet here we are, in defiance of Lovecraft, laughing through the darkness. The Lovely Craftians is an all-ladies Call of Cthulhu actual play podcast with horror, humor, and no small amount of chaos set in an occasionally familiar modern-day Chicago. Brought to you by Wampus House Productions and the Penwich Studio Network, you can find The Lovelies on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcatcher, or anytime over at lovelycraftians.com. And remember, you never roll sanity alone here. So, Mary... Yeah. Are you ready to talk I'm about so ready. gender and sexuality? Yeah. Um, so I think the title of this show gives us a really good idea of what it's going to be about, right? Not milk. It's not about milk. It's not just dairy, D-E-R-R-Y, not D-A-I-R-Y. Uh, it is not just dairy. It is not dairy folks or whatever. It is dairy girls. It is specifically about dairy and it's specifically about girls. So it's about young women, except that by season two, when James returns after almost going back to England with his mother, dairy girl has widened to include James as well. So as it should, as it should. So that tells us it's not purely about gender, right? Okay. But, um, him and Aaron need to kiss. <laughs> yes. It was very cute. Um, it seems like the ide the identity of Dairy Girl seems to be less about gender and more about a unique life experience and about friendship. Because even though James is from England and also a boy, he's still a Dairy Girl. 
Um, and I think that's interesting in itself, but I also think it's important in the context of media about Northern Ireland. Um, so this is a quote from Dairy Girls, finally a realistic comedy about being a young woman in Northern Ireland, which is by Caroline McGinnis, who writes, A teenage girl's modesty must be protected in the conservative faith traditions of Northern Ireland. The politi- politician Bernadette Devlin's age was often used against her as she was given the moniker Fidel Castro in a miniskirt. Mm. Novels and films based on the troubles often foreground teenage male protagonists due to the drama of their potential involvement as paramilitary foot soldiers and the possibility of their refusing to take part in the conflict. So in most of the media, you have this like focus on teen boys. And here you have this very different like and very intentional shift where they just straight up name the show Dairy Girls and they're like, deal with it, <laughs> which is probably like a very Dairy Girl attitude. Yeah. Um, so this intentional shift in the focus there kind of pushes back against the perception of the conflict as being purely about men and also about this this. um conflict as being something to which women were witnesses but not like but only as like wives or mothers or whatever it it situates this as being something like women were affected by it too and not just when the men in their life died um so this is a quote from uh in dairy girls the lighter side of life in a conflict zone which is by alice jones who writes what makes Dairy Girls unique is the light touch it uses to deal with the heavy hand of history. We couldn't present that dreary Northern Ireland again, where it's always men in leather jackets, everything's gray, and nobody has a sense of humor, McGee said. And that's McGee, Lisa McGee, the creator. So both of these quotes, the latter from Lisa McGee, uh, really show that centering a young woman's perspective on, on the show was important to, to its goals. There was something unique to the young woman's experience that McGee and the other creators wanted to get across, Especially because so much of media about Northern Ireland situated women as waiting for their husbands or boyfriends or brother or whatever to return from war. Not these girls. Not these girls. Here we have rowdy women who aren't afraid, who just aren't, just aren't afraid. Um, so, so, so very afraid, yet. Yeah. Who aren't waiting at home and who sometimes have more of a force of personality than the men in their lives, right? Like, a lot of times the women in the show are more forceful or more out there than their husbands. Mm-hmm. Um, and importantly, I think the show is not demonizing anybody who does not fit the traditional gender role. Michelle isn't demonized for being the most sexually aggressive, right? Mm-hmm. It's funny, but it's not like she's painted as bad for she's it. Not slut. And it doesn't treat her like that. I think importantly, the show is not like, oh, Michelle's so gross. Um, Jerry, despite being maligned by like every character, is probably the most likable member of the family. Like he seems like the, the nicest he one. He's just nice. Like everybody shits on him all the time, but he's probably the one that you would probably be most happy to know in real life. Yeah. Um, And everybody secretly loves James, despite him also being the butt of so many jokes specifically about his sexuality and gender. Right. Like like people are willing to protect James. They get mad about him leaving and like it feels like a betrayal to them Mm -hmm. because they love him, even though they don't express it in the like, I love you, James. They express it by being like, you fucking suck, James. (laughs) Um so even the title Dairy Girls at first, which seems so easy to read, it's a show about girls and dairy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it is situating the show as something different in the landscape of stories about Northern Ireland and the Troubles. It's telling you up front, we're going to tell a different kind of story than those that are normally the subject of this kind of media. And then what that sort of different story is sort of shifts throughout the show because the boundary lines of dairy and the boundary lines of girl are being pushed at. Um 
So, for example, James, who is from England, uh, attends an all-girls Catholic school, right? And aside from jokes about in the first episode about bathroom use that we'll get to in a bit. That's so funny. Um, he's just sort of a feature there, right? Like the really grounding part of the identity becomes dairy. Um, even though James is an outsider, he becomes a dairy girl in part, I'm sure, because it's a heartwarming moment to have him choose to choose to stay, right? Okay, sure. That's the boring answer. Um, but even that choosing, I think, is symbolic, right? He's English and he chooses Northern Ireland. He's not from Derry, but he chooses Derry. He's not a girl, but he chooses them. And in fact, he chooses all of these things that seem opposed to his identity because he loves and cares for those things, which never would have happened had he, if he had not initially been forced to stay there. And he comes to love, you know, them despite their strangeness, strangeness and their sometimes obnoxiousness because he sees the value in their uniqueness. And I think it's really easy to, to look at this and kind of stretch it into a platitude of, you know, like if only on people, if only people on opposing sides of a conflict would get to know each other, conflict wouldn't exist. But I don't think the show is actually taking that easy approach, right? The difference between James and the rest of the Dairy Girls is that, is that they are children growing up at the tail end of this extremely long conflict. It's not just like somebody on the outside making platitudes about like, if they would just get to know each other, then they wouldn't fight. They inherit the prejudices of their parents to an extent, right? Like they are always like saying things about Protestants or whatever. Um, But they're able to grow beyond them. And since the girls and James have no choice but to interact with one another, they end up becoming friends, which is itself not an end to the troubles, right? It's just people making friends across borders because they're teenagers and the things that are ingrained in their parents' mind don't hold the same sway over them, even if they do parrot them once in a while. Instead, they bond over being in Derry, which is an entirely unique experience. Um, but girl, like the word still holds precedence. James becomes a dairy girl. He's not just now a citizen of dairy. He's not just a friend of dairy. He is a dairy girl because that too is a unique identity separate from being just a person who lives in dairy. This is very true. And same girl as uh, Girl Scouts. Mm-hmm. You are a Girl Scout doesn't necessarily mean you are a girl. Mm-hmm. And even better, like being a being a dairy girl is a positive thing to, de- to be. Mm-hmm. Um, He happily takes on the identity of Dairy Girl, even as it means he's living up to the jokes about him not really being a boy. Like, he's like, no, I'm happy to be a Dairy Girl. It sort of destigmatizes the idea of being a girl. Um, So now I thought all that was great. Like, I thought that was really effective. I thought it was really sweet. But to switch gears a little bit, there are a couple of gestures in Dairy Girl that I really do think are made in goodwill and that do introduce some important issues, but where I personally would have liked to see them go a bit deeper or be a bit more daring in how they're handling these issues. Um, one of them is in the first episode when James comes to town and he has to go to the all-girls Catholic school with his cousin and, and her friends, and he's unable to use any of the bathrooms at school because he's the only boy at the girls' school, so there's no bathroom available to him. And he ends up peeing in a vase or something. So this is a quote from the Cracker Representations of Gender and Sexuality in Dairy Girls, which is by Lara O'Toole. Um, in the pilot episode, James begins his tenure in an all-girls Catholic school for fear, for fear he'll be beaten up in a boys' school. And he realizes that the school doesn't have a men's bathroom. Eric Weitz argues that a joke is always, quote, at someone or something's expense, unquote. And in James's case, the joke is twofold. First, we laugh at the suffering of the wee English fella, post-colonial gratification, one might say. And secondly, we laugh at the absurdity of the denial of one's right to use a bathroom. White's echoes O'Casey's sentiments that, quote, laughter is brought in to mock at things as they are so that they may topple down and make room for better things to come, unquote. 
The increasingly agonized looks on James' face are enough to make anyone chuckle, and the blink-and-you'll-miss-it nod to bathroom accessibility legislation is is arguably the the joke's greatest strength. It reduces the political minefield of bathroom pills to its core. People need to pee, and they need a place to do so. (laughs) If we can laugh at the thought that James might be a quote-unquote pervert, as Michelle puts it, for needing to use a restroom to which he has no access, surely we can laugh at the same thought when it refers to those who do not identify with their assigned sex. So I also had this thought while watching the show. And I'm not sure if they were like intentionally gesturing towards America's bathroom bill legislation, which if you're not familiar, um, is legislation that bans trans kids from preventing or sorry, it bans trans kids from using the bathroom corresponding to their identity and instead forces them to use the bathroom corresponding to the identity they were assigned at birth. Um, but it did definitely pop into my mind while watching. And I actually had less positive thoughts about it than O'Toole did. Really? Yeah. If you're not familiar with this legislation or what it means, essentially it means that like if you are a trans girl, you are forced to use the the boys' restroom. And the reason being, you know, we're trying, you know, quote unquote, we're trying to protect girls from boys who are perverts. In doing so, endangering a trans girl and forcing her to, you know, deal with dysphoria every time she's forced to use the wrong bathroom or to not allow them to use the bathroom at all yeah which effects effectively bars trans kids from public spaces right so this this kind of legislation can have hugely detrimental effects on um on trans kids or trans adults for that matter um and can bar them from certain spaces if if restroom accommodations are not provided either through genderless or gender neutral bathrooms or by not policing who you, who's using what restroom it's a goddamn bathroom right it's I don't a have fucking bathroom. bathrooms in my house yeah the thing I'll that's never really understand it. this kind of legislation is is just frankly ridiculous because if a man wanted to yeah. hurt a woman he would just walk the fuck into a bathroom he would not need to go through this Pretend. like imagined idea that he starts transitioning or like don't be fucking ridiculous how many women have been how many people have been in line for the women's bathroom and been like this is a long line i'm just gonna go use the men's room i have yeah multiple times i'm just gonna use the men's bathroom and there's there's reasons for why women's bathroom lines are so long (laughs) but like it's it's just a it's a it's a ridiculous argument and the legislation is just blatantly transphobic and all it does is seek to induce dysphoria in in trans folks or to ban them entirely from public spaces that's all it is all urinals out only stall bathrooms done yeah it's just whatever it's like i don't want to really see the urinal part (laughs) not the person just the urinal (laughs) right um so like i said i had less positive thoughts about this in the show than O'Toole did. And it's not because I think the show is coming at it with any ill will. I don't think that at all. Um, I'm not sure if they, again, I'm not even sure if they were trying to reference this kind of legislation or just to make a joke about the absurdity of James' situation, right? Because it is, it's absurd. It is hilarious. Like, how are you going to be mad at him for this? Um, so funny. But watching James become increasingly uncomfortable, knowing that this kind of legislation is enforced in many places, sort of robbed it of the humor for me. Um, because, especially because Michelle does call him a pervert, which is the term often leveled at trans women in this exact situation. Um, she doesn't mean it like that, right? Like she's not calling him a pervert because he does not agree with his assigned gender at birth. That's not what's happening. And it's clear that the joke is on Michelle because she's the one being ridiculous. He's just trying to go to the bathroom. Yeah. 
Um, but the use of that word with regard to this issue made me feel uncomfortable about it rather than like they were trying to make a point. And like, of course, James is not trans in the show, right? So we're, we're talking about a cis man. We're not talking about a trans woman. Um, so we cannot say that Michelle or anybody else is being transphobic, right? This isn't, this isn't an, uh, a case involving a trans student. Um, but I felt uncomfortable with the joke itself, which reminded me of trans bathroom bills. And then the ultimate resolution just being punishment when I would have liked to see somebody stick up for James on this issue. Mm-hmm. Um, irritated as they might be with him because it's the first episode and they haven't gotten to know each other yet, right? Because the situation is ridiculous. What do they expect? Yeah, I think it does. What it does well is that I don't think... In my in my head, I don't think it was saying anything about what's happening here in the legislation. I think what it does... Well, it's not just here. I guess that's true. Is the thing. I, the UK, no, is, true the the UK, UK is arguably worse with trans issues right. than the US, which is saying something. I think what it does well, though, is like it breaks it down to this is so absurd. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is literally like really dumb mm-hmm. that it can be such a silly thing yeah like why are we fighting over this that's why like it's i don't think toilet i don't think the joke itself was ineffective but like if you are going to make jokes about restricted access to bathrooms on the basis of gender or sex then i think that you should make a gesture to a further gesture toward it's wrong that you would deny him the ability to use a bathroom because what do you expect him to do <laughs> And well, like pee in a corner. Yeah. Like we can, we can figure that out from the, um, as an audience, right? Like we can see that it's absurd, but I would have liked to see that absurdity addressed in the show itself okay. by the characters rather than just having us make that mental leap. Um, like that he doesn't get punished or whatever, or that someone apologizes because he had no other choice. Just something like that to kind of address the fact that like we sh- we're not laughing at James here we're laughing at the absurdity of the situation mm-hmm. and wouldn't it be fucked up if that happened in real life? Oh wait, it does. Yeah. That kind of connection I think would have, would have gone a long way to making me so feel many, more positive about it. So many UTIs. Oh, God. Can you imagine? I cannot. Um, so this is a quote. To be fair, you don't use public restrooms like 90%. I avoid it if I can. Um, so this is a quote with a wild headline. Uh, Dairy Girls writer McGee, sorry, Dairy Girls writer Lisa McGee explains that ending and Claire's Brave Revelation, which is by Sarah Doran. Um, and this is a, this starts with a quote from um, Saoirse Jackson, who plays Aaron. Um, I don't think in any way that Aaron's homophobic. I just think that she saw, she's shocked. Um, it challenges that view that Aaron has about herself and that she's worldly and she's liberal. This is another defining moment that we get to see for Aaron, that actually she's so naive and shocked by most things. She just has a romantic idea of herself that she's bigger than what she is, smarter than she is. And this is one of those moments where you get to see how naive she is. Aaron thinks of herself as very liberal and worldly, but actually she can't handle it, McGee said. I think it's how a lot of people would react at that age. And honestly, in all, all honesty... I thought Erin was bisexual based on her response to some popular girl in the first episode. I can't remember exactly what happens, but like she does the same thing with a boy. There's like a boy that it's, I think Dave or whatever. Well, she's she, like, she's like, Oh, I hate that guy. And then he comes up to her and she's like, oh, he's so nice. I have to go to his party. And then something happens with a popular girl as well. I don't think it's Jenny. I think it's somebody else. Oh, I know who you're talking and about. And she's like, Oh, are you? Oh, it's in the episode where they're going to France. Uh-huh. And she's like, oh, she's so snobby and blah, blah, blah. And then she comes over and she's like, oh, are you going to Paris? And she's like, oh, I would love to go to Paris with you. And I was like, oh, this girl's bisexual. Well, and the <laughs> way that she reacts after um, when what's her name goes with somebody else. Claire. Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if it comes out that way. Yeah. And some like internalized. Yeah. So it actually, because of that, 
I, it really did take me by surprise <laughs> that she responded the way that she did when Claire came out. Um, I think it honestly, it doesn't surprise me because the mentality was so different. Oh, yeah. That like I just as if you listen to us, you'll know I just recently rewatched all the Gilmore Girls and it, it, Gilmore Girls is very like they talk about Hillary Clinton so much like they <laughs> they fucking love Hillary Clinton and they're very clear on their politics. But there are plenty of jokes about being gay and that being bad. Mm-hmm. So I think it doesn't surprise me because I would that to me felt like a realistic reaction. No, it just surprised like me. DOC. It surprised me coming from Aaron. Specifically, See, it, it doesn't surprise me coming from Aaron. Well, that's because I thought she was bisexual. Oh, I guess it <laughs> if I thought she was straight, it would not have surprised me. It surprised me that she was apparently straight. Um, in fact, I thought that having Aaron essentially use Claire's sexuality to further her own ambition and having Aaron clearly be in the wrong for that was really effective. Like, I thought that was really well done. I was like, no, that totally tracks that Aaron, if she is in fact straight, would respond to her friend coming out with what? No, you can't upstage me in this moment. Um, That made sense to me. Uh, As we mentioned earlier, there's clearly groundwork laid that Erin sees herself as this really progressive and smart and creative main character type. Not in the like she's literally the main character of the show, but in the like TikTok main character syndrome sense. You know what I mean? Yes. This situation in particular reveals that it's all a veneer, right? She uses Claire's story to make a splash as the new editor in this edition of the school paper. And when she finds out that Claire's a lesbian, she reacts with surprise and even disgust. Like she's like, she tells her to go back in the closet, (laughs) which is like a nasty fucking thing to say to somebody. And I would know. Um, But having been on the receiving end of a very similar (laughs) remark, um, but like, I thought that was effective. I thought that community that that tracked with Aaron's established character, even if I thought she was bisexual, um, that tracked with her established character. And it made sense in the time period. And it made sense that she would behave that way. Like all of that worked. Mm-hmm. I thought worked super well. She does come around, obviously. And by season two, everybody's wearing rainbow pins, maybe in I support know. of Claire. Um, they don't really discuss the rainbow pins they at all. Don't. I noticed it first on what's his name. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wait a second. He kept saying he's not gay. <laughs> and then I noticed everyone else was wearing them. Yeah. Claire, if I remember correctly, Claire was the first one to wear one. And then they all started doing it. Um, so I think that it's clear to read it as um, solidarity. solidarity with Claire. I know. Yeah. Um, But I think that that initial reaction of her being disgusted is accurate to the time period and also to how teenagers can respond to things, right? Like Claire's sexuality doesn't match Aaron's concept for who Claire is. Mm -hmm. So she reacts poorly and she hurts Claire's feelings. Like if like Aaron, you know, and everybody does this, right? Including when you're a teenager and maybe especially when you're a teenager, you tell yourself stories about the person that you are and the people around you. Mm -hmm. And when that story doesn't line up, with when the story you tell yourself doesn't line up with the reality that can cause friction Mm -hmm. and so to Erin Claire is always like her straight friend as she's always seen her and now whoa find out she's a lesbian that conflicts with Erin's narrative about herself and so she fights back is it a good thing to do no like it doesn't make Erin look great and it's a mean thing to do to Claire but it makes sense. But it, yeah, it feels re- it feels real. Yeah, totally. It feels authentic. Yeah. So that said, while I liked how this was handled, other than that, I would really like to see Claire's sexuality expressed in the show. Mm-hmm. Um, we hear a lot about how dreamy boys are, but I don't remember ever getting that from her unless you count May, who was awful. Um, but I loved her. I did. Yeah, she was great. She was great and awful. 
Um, I did, while I was reading some stuff about the show, I did see people bring up that they grew up in this period in this area as queer kids and found Claire's experience to be very different from their own. Hmm. Um, on the Dairy Girls subreddit, one person mentioned having, like, growing up in a Catholic school in the Dairy area and having to undergo conversion therapy Oof. because they were undergoing, they were I mean, in Catholic education, right? And eventually they, they had to leave Northern Ireland because they didn't feel safe there. Mm. Um, now, there's a couple of ways to respond to this, right? Like on the one hand, this is a comedy show and it's quite likely that the creators simply did not want to engage with the darker side of being queer in this period and in this specific place because in many ways they're creating this friend group as a place of sanctuary mm-hmm. and conversion therapy is maybe not something that they wanted to deal with. Um on the other, I think there are quite a few unusual things about the way that Catholicism is portrayed in the show, which we'll get into in a minute. Um, personally, I don't think that faithfulness to reality is the be-all, end-all of media, even if that media is realistic, um, which I don't think that realism is the show's goal, right? Like, I think it's about evoking, it's evoking feelings that are real, and it is about real things, but the show itself is not realistic. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not going to say that the show would be better if Claire had to face something like conversion therapy. I actually would not like to see that, you know, I'm okay with that not happening. Um, although I would love to see them break her out of it. Out of conversion therapy. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I honestly don't think that the show would be better if it had conversion therapy. It It would have been really funny. Sorry. (laughs) For them to break her out and then them be like, wait, am I gay? Like all these things that they're being told. Cause like, it's so absurd. Yeah. I think that a show that included Claire experiencing conversion therapy because of her Catholic education would be different. And maybe that would even be a good show, but it would not necessarily be better than the one that we have. Yeah. Plus the sister um, in charge just doesn't care that much. Yeah. Well, we'll get to her in a minute. Uh, instead, as some people on the show subreddit suggested, it might've been preferable, preferable to see some pushback from other students or authority figures that would establish homophobia as a bad thing rather than as a non-issue because there's a difference right in homophobia being bad versus homophobia not being a problem Mm -hmm. and i think when we're dealing with this real time period and the real religious influence it is worth addressing the fact that homophobia was a problem and not just non-existent yeah um and i don't think it is entirely a non-issue given that sister michael tells them not to publish the issue um, yeah. Although, of course, she seemed proud of them for doing it anyway, but we'll get to her in a moment. Because she's not straight. I agree. <laughs> um, I think having Aaron be immediately horrified and rude about Claire's identity was a good idea because it establishes her character flaws and deals, however briefly, with the existence of homophobia. I would, however, have liked to see her immediate disgust be addressed more clearly. It's easy to read the end of that season as Aaron just supporting Claire because they're friends, whereas I would have liked to see a little more support for queer folks as a whole. And maybe we'll get that later. I'm not saying it won't happen. It's just something that at the end of that season, the resolution to that problem felt more like, well, we're all friends and we stick up for each other rather than, hey, Aaron's being homophobic. (laughs) And I would have liked to see that addressed. Um, So now let's talk about religion and Sister Michael. Um, So we've talked about the, the, the way that religion, you know, plays into the show, despite the conflict itself not being religious. But I think Sister Michael is a particularly interesting figure because she, while she is the headmistress of the school and she is a nun, she does not seem to be particularly interested in upholding the teachings of the church. Right. Oh. She hopes the Pope, ne- like publicly hopes the Pope never comes to Derry. She cusses, which one of these articles said basically um, is less a reflection of um, like in 
I, I should have kept the quote in here, but I didn't. It's from the Mary T. Stimming piece. She talks about, she compares Sister Michael to the hot priest in Fleabag, which I have not seen, who uses cussing as like a means to appear like youthful and cool. Mm-hmm. Whereas Sister Michael is just talking the way people from Derry talk. Mm. Um, so yeah, she publicly hopes that the Pope never comes to Derry. She treats priests with disdain. <laughs> and while she says the right things according to her position of authority, right? Like she says, don't publish the wee lesbian story. Don't skip school to see Bill Clinton, all that kinds of stuff. She never seems to enforce those things. And in fact, chides Jenny for, for adhering to the instructions. That was so good. It was really good. So this is a quote from uh, Humor and Humanity, Sister Michael from Derry Girls by Mary T. Stimming, who writes, when Claire narks out the others, Sister Michael dryly observes, I think it's safe to say we We've all lost a bit of respect for you there, Claire, <laughs> before proceeding to the disciplinary matter at hand. This moment captures the wonder that is Sister Michael. She's savvy to personal dynamics, transparent in her opinions, and careful to wield her authority to promote values, not self or institution. No doubt viewer enthusiasm for Sister Michael derives mostly from the first two traits because they make her relatable, but it's the third that makes her a most welcome religious figure in popular culture. So her response to the story in the newspaper about being a lesbian um, is to warn them against it, right? But not to punish them for publishing it. In fact, she looks proud Yeah. when the newspaper is being handed out and she takes a copy for herself. So it seems to me like Sister Michael is more interested in teaching the students to be good people, not necessarily obedient people, but good people, than she is in teaching them to be good Catholics. You know that she kissed that Protestant girl. <laughs> you know she did. I'll get there. They set that up. That's my next bullet point. Um, the two ideas of being a good person versus being a good Catholic may overlap for some people, but Sister Michael jokes about things like only becoming a nun for a free accommodation, which leads us to believe that like her interest in teaching Catholicism is not teaching Catholicism. It's something else. So to be honest, I would not be surprised if Sister Michael herself is a lesbian. Absolutely. Um, if she made the choice to become a nun despite not seeming particularly devout and becoming a nun is not just like a fun thing that you do. It's like... Um, giving yourself a life of poverty and a life of uh, without romantic attachments and all this kind of stuff. Um, so if she chose to become a nun, despite not seeming to be devout, she had to have another reason for doing so. Right. So it could be that her relationship to religion is different now than we expect. Like um, maybe she felt one way about the church when she joined. She feels a different way now. Um, But I also sincerely wouldn't be surprised if we find out that she is a lesbian who joined the convent early in life Mm -hmm. because she felt one way about her relationship with God and she now feels differently. I totally believe that. This paints her leadership position in a different light because it tracks with how she's teaching the girls the rules, but also encouraging them to push back. Um, So this is another quote from that same essay. Um, Humor and Humanity. Sister Michael and Dairy Girls by Mary T. Stimming, who writes, When news arrives that the American president, Bill Clinton, will be visiting Derry, the main characters are ecstatic. For once, the world will be watching us for the right reasons. But to the girls' dismay, Sister Michael does not grant them the day off school to hear him speak. The day of the speech, however, the only student in class is Jenny from the school paper episode. When Sister Michael asks why she's there, Jenny, with self-congratulation, says, You told us we had to come in, sister. With a touch of exasperation, Sister Michael responds, oh, for God's sake, Jenny, you need to learn when to push back. With that, she dismisses Jenny and we, not Jenny, see Sister Michael smile broadly. Um, It's quite possible that Sister Michael is just serving the same function as many of the Irish women in the show, right? Like they're fearless and coarse and tough in a way that media doesn't normally show them as. It It is possible that that's what's being done with Sister Michael. But at the same time, the fact that she's a nun who doesn't seem to be faithful leads me to believe that there is more to her story. And since Claire has yet to experience even a real flirt, like even a real flirtation, 
I feel like, or maybe just hope that that story is going somewhere, perhaps yeah. with Sister Michael as a sort of mentor to Claire specifically, who needs to lighten up. Um, so like, I I see that as a potential direction, and I think that Sister Michael is such a, um, like such a good figure, and I think that that would also explain like why Claire isn't punished. I guess maybe she doesn't know that Claire's the lesbian. It's possible, but like... No, I think it comes out that it's her. I I don't want to spoil anything about season three, but every indication is that Sister Michael knows. Um, she, she's 100% kissing girls. I, I, I believe that. She 100% kissed that Protestant lady. They <laughs> kissed all night. And that's why they were upset that the kids got woke them up. <laughs> um, so the last thing I want to talk about is the region of Derry itself and what the future of the region is. Because I think that the show remains very relevant. Um, I don't want to go too deep here because I am far from an expert and I have done enough running of my mouth about conflicts <laughs> I don't know anything about. Um, but I think that Dairy Girl's relevance is only growing despite the show itself taking place like 30 years ago. Not just because the themes are still largely relatable, but also because of Brexit, uh, which has once again cast doubt onto what constitutes, constitutes the border of Ireland and whether or not it is part of the UK. For one, conflict is still happening there. Um, so this is a quote from In Northern Ireland, Dairy Girls Balances Teen Comedy and Sectarian Conflict by Joanna Cacassis, who writes... Um, she's referring to Lyra McKee, a 29-year-old journalist killed during rioting in the Craigan era of Der- area of Derry last April. A group called the New IRA claimed responsibility and apologized to her family. The reaction to her death was outrage, a sign that most people here want to stick by the 1998 Good Friday Agreement ending the sectarian fighting. On the monument marking Free Derry Corner, someone spray-painted Not In Our Name, Rest In Peace Lyra. So... Just for a little bit of context, McKee, who was killed in in this riot, um, doesn't seem to have been the victim of a targeted attack. From what I understand, people were firing at the police and she was struck as a bystander. But still, she became a casualty of the ongoing struggle against British rule. Like, she was still affected by that. So while there was a ceasefire and the Good Friday Agreement, not everybody agrees that this conflict is over. And Brexit has made the situation even more complicated. If, like me, you're an American who doesn't understand Brexit, you are in good company. Um, But I'm going to do my best to explain this in a way that might make some degree of sense. Please know that it is way more complicated than this. It is way more difficult to explain than this. And I'm just trying to find a way to explain it that we can grasp onto and be like, oh, okay, I get that. So the European Union or the EU is a union of distinct countries in Europe and being part of the union allows things like free travel as in like you don't need a special visa or whatever. Um, It allows you to transport goods over borders and that kind of thing. Uh, Open trade, um, that kind of stuff among member countries in I think I can't remember exactly when they voted on this, but Britain voted to leave the EU. Was it 2017? It could have been 2017. It could be 2016. It could be... 2019 um it feels like it's been going on forever and that's because like they keep reaching different deadlines with it um so britain voted to leave the eu for a bunch of reasons um that amount to things like xenophobia um and that because of the agreement with ireland and with northern ireland specifically that them voting to leave to leave the eu puts 
Northern Ireland in a super weird position because they are self-governing to an extent, but they are still part of the UK. Um, the And part of the agreement, the Good Friday Agreement, was open borders between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. So to take a left turn here into metaphor, we have two very different political climates here in Washington. Yes, um, we do. Western Washington is probably, if you're not from Washington, that is probably how you think of Washington. Mm -hmm. It's rainy. We wear a lot of flannel, generally Democratic voters, that kind of thing. But there is a whole other side of the mountains that is plains. It's desert. And it is hot. And it is largely conservative. And it snows. And it snows. It's wild over there. And this is sort of, again, this this idea of the conflict of, of Northern Ireland in the UK during Brexit. This is sort of like if the state of Washington decided, the entire state of Washington decided to secede from the U.S., but Western Washington wanted to be part of the U.S. and Eastern Washington wanted to leave it. We are all technically the same state, but our ideologies and our interests differ, and but we're all affected by it, right? Um, obviously, the politics of Eastern versus Western Washington do not carry the same weight as Northern Ireland versus the Republic of, of Ireland or the Republic of Washington, as I put. Um, <laughs> please don't try to make the politics match because it won't work. This was just my, my metaphor. Um, the point is Ireland, the island, is not the same as the Republic of Ireland nor Northern Ireland. And because Britain voted to leave the EU, the tenuousness of this peace agreement from the Good Friday Agreement has been exposed. Like, it's clear now that that agreement had some flimsy boundaries. And now we're like, okay, what do we do with these flimsy boundaries? Because, like, it's things like you can't have uh, a border check between, between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. But if the if Northern Ireland is in the EU and the Republic of Ireland is not, border. then you have to have a border check. So it gets very complicated. Uh, if you haven't looked into it, the complications involved are this are more than you could imagine, including like the the trade routes. Like from what I understand, for many products, tr- they they come through Northern Ireland into Great Britain, so that like stops if they leave the EU, then they no longer have that poor accessibility. Um, the, the ability for some goods to enter the EU or to enter the UK at all, like chilled meats can't be imported outside of the EU. Um, there's tariffs, there's potential suspension of the Good Friday Agreement. Like all of this has been thrown into question because hmm. Britain wanted to leave the EU. The point being, while it might seem like this conflict was solved by the Good Friday Agreement because a lot of the violence has dissipated and that the and that, that means that the show is looking at this historical conflict, that's not really the case. Um, so this is a quote here from In Dairy Girls, The Lighter Side of Life in a Conflict Zone by Alice Jones, who writes... Derry is on the border with the Republic of Ireland, which is a member of the bloc. And in the 2016 referendum, 2016, 78% of voters in FOIL, the parliamentary district that contains Derry, favored remaining in the European Union. Hmm. Many fear that the return of a hard border between Northern Ireland and the Irish Republic will inflame sectarian tensions and threaten stability. There's always been a belief in your head when you're from there that it could turn because you've seen it before, McGee said. It's made me double down on how important peace is. Mm. So part of, I mean, she doesn't say this exactly, but McGee here is talking about the fact that when you grow up in this area, you always have the fear that it could happen again. And now, you know, in 2021, with, you know, Brexit happening, like there is a really clear possibility that violence 
can erupt again because it has thrown into light how tenuous this peace agreement is. We simply don't know what to do from here. And any solution is going to anger somebody. That's hard. Yeah, it's a very, very difficult thing. And so I think the show, like, despite the fact that it takes place, you know, 30 years ago, it's not less relevant, not just because, you know, not just because of Brexit, but also just because of what it's saying about life in a conflict zone. Well, I was like bawling at the end of the episode just because like the talk about two sides like and we like we're better together and like I know that sounds so corny but like it just really like all that the messaging just feels so relevant right mm-hmm. now of, like if we literally just all got together and thought about each other <laughs> if we all became dairy girls if we all became dairy girls maybe things would be better I I just think that everything about that was so relevant mm-hmm. to so many different things um, I also loved how obsessed they were with Bill Clinton and Chelsea Clinton. <laughs> so funny. And Hillary Clinton. They were all in love with them, and I loved it. That was based on the her them writing the letter to Chelsea Clinton to hang out was based on something Lisa McKee actually did. Oh, my gosh. Not to go to the wave pool, though. <laughs> <laughs> um, I can't remember what she actually said. It was in one of these articles, but it's out there. Um, do you have anything else to say about Dairy Girls? It's so good. It was Everybody really good. Watch it. It's really short. You can finish it in a fucking day if yeah. you really want. It's six hours in total, which is my kind of show. Yeah, and um, I can't wait for the next season. And I just think it has a lot to say. Yeah, um, and it does it really well. And I love all the characters. Yeah. so much. And I wish them all well in life. <laughs> <laughs> They're all adults now. They're older than us. I wish them all well. Um, so that's going to do it for this episode. You can find us online at fakegeekgirlscast.com, which has links to all of our previous episodes, uh, our podcast network, Penwich Studio, um, and all of the many sources that we consult throughout each episode. Um, it's a lot. It is a lot. I read a lot for these. Uh, this was the, like, the, this one was really hard and really easy. Yeah. It was both. Well, I would imagine there's a lot of information on there, but that means there's a lot of information on there. Yeah, exactly. The amount of history reading I did was way above average, um, but that took up so much of the outline that I eventually was like, wow, I don't really have to do much else, do I? Um, If you like the podcast and you want to talk with other people who like the podcast as well as Mary and I, um, you can email us at contact at fakegirlscast.com, which uh, I can send you a link to our Discord. Um, It is not private. It is simply closed to people who do not email me (laughs) you could also tweet at me and i could dm it to you it's just uh i don't want to just post the link so that we don't get people coming in like on bad faith and like i'm in the bathroom or whatever and they're spamming the chat with racism yeah um i just don't want that to happen so uh so send me an email contact at fakegeekgirlscast.com and i can send you an invite Next time, it's time to talk about The Vampire Diaries, seasons five through eight. Soon Missy can be done with her hell. Soon I can be free from this torment. Um, you can go into something you love. Yes, because after that, we are, going to be talking, we are going to be talking about Hellblazer, specifically volume one of the trade paperbacks, um, which is called uh, Original Sins. And then I think volume five, which is Dangerous Habits. Uh, and then we will be talking about the new run, um, not the newest one, but the one 
It's John Constantine Hellblazer, and it is by Simon Spurrier, Matthias Bergara, Aaron Campbell, Jordi Belair, and Aditya Bidikar. Um, and it's really good. That one's in two trades, Marks of Woe, and I can't remember what the second one's called, sorry. Um, and then after that, we're going to be doing Constantine and Constantine. That's right. You heard it here first. You heard it here first. We're going to be talking about the movie starring Keanu Reeves, and we are going to be talking about the show starring Matt Ryan. Uh, I can't wait to compare those two things. Um, Missy just can't wait. I just can't wait. I have a lot to say. It's going to be a good month for her. It is. It's a solid, a solid time for me. Uh, and then after that, we're going to be doing Fruits Basket, splitting up into the manga and the two TV series. Um, I know we have a couple of people who've talked about commissioning us, so some of this may be spread out. Um, but I think we're going to stick. We're going to, if you do plan on commissioning us, Hellblazer and Constantine are going to be fixed in place. Yeah. So just keep that in mind because I don't want to overwhelm Mary with reading 40 year old comics. It's hard. I um, listen to books for a reason. Yeah. I don't want to overwhelm Mary. So those are remaining fixed in place so that we can prepare ahead of time. Yeah. It's um, all planned out. Any commissions will instead come after the two Hellblazer Constantine episodes. Which means get them in now. Yeah. Get them in now. If that's something you want to do. Um, so that's it. All right. Catch you on the flip side. Catch yourself on. Catch yourself on. Catch yourself on.